It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. When former FBI Director James Comey reopened the Hillary Clinton email investigation before the 2016 election, he says it was in the name of transparency. The controversial move was done so the FBI would keep its credibility, he says. I think people that have taken the time to put themselves in my shoes and stare at the options I stared at would say, as the Inspector General did, I disagree with the result, but I understand why he did what he did. In today's show, Comey explains his actions and why he regrets calling Clinton extremely careless. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. James Comey oversaw the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which took about a year. He was probing her use of an unsecure server to send and receive emails, some of which were top secret. Eleven days before the November 2016 election, Comey sent a letter to Congress announcing he was reviewing new emails pertinent to the investigation. This news cost Clinton the presidency, thinks political pollster Nate Silver and many others. Silver wrote, Hillary Clinton would probably be president if Comey had not sent that letter. Comey sits down with journalist Katie Couric and gives his take of those days before the election. He also talks about Trump, his latest book, A Higher Loyalty, and what's next for him in life and career. Here's Katie Couric. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. An interesting thing happened toward the end of your media blitz. The Justice Department's Inspector General, a former colleague of yours named Michael Horowitz, issued a 500-page report about your actions as head of the FBI during the 2016 campaign. It was highly critical. Mm -hmm. As you know, let me read you some excerpts. Your press conference in July of 2016 was, quote, on an extraordinary and insubordinate thing to do. Quote, we found none of Mr. Comey's reasons to be a persuasive basis for deviating from well-established department policies. You engaged in your own, quote, subjective ad hoc decision-making the report also said your October 28th letter to Congress announcing a reopened Clinton investigation was a, quote, serious error in judgment. Now, at the time the report came out, you also wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that even though you disagreed with some of Horowitz's conclusions, you respected the work his office did. That said, take us back to the day you were reading this report. What was that like? It was painful. I had encouraged the report when I was director and even after I got fired, I wanted them to do it because I think accountability is incredibly important to the institution especially. And reading it was painful for a couple reasons. First, it was a bit of a, it's a trauma to go back through one of the most painful things I've ever been through as a leader. And then it's painful to read yourself being criticized. Even though I expected to be criticized, it was painful. And I read it in draft first and Yes, that, that's how I felt about it. Let's uh, talk about these three big decisions mm -hmm. you made. I know you've addressed them all during your numerous interviews, but the IG report really did breathe new life into the controversy. So July 5th, 2016, you held a press conference announcing you were not recommending charges be brought against Secretary Clinton that, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. But you also said that Clinton was, quote, extremely careless in her handling of emails. My question is this, what were you doing 
making this announcement in the first place. You were not the Attorney General. You weren't even a prosecutor. Why was it appropriate for you as the investigator to make that announcement? Yeah, it's a great question. I was doing something I never could have imagined because normally the responsibility for announcing the closing of an investigation and offering transparency, which is done in cases of extraordinary public interest, for example, in Ferguson, we did a public report there, but it's always the Attorney General that announces, and the FBI Director is typically standing next to the Attorney General. The reason I did it here was I thought it was between two options, offering transparency separately or offering it standing next to the Attorney General, the one least likely to do lasting damage to the institutions was this bad option, not this bad option. And I'm not picking on Loretta Lynch by saying that, but there were a number of things that had happened that led me to believe, and reasonable people I knew at the time could see it differently, but led me to believe that it would be very difficult for her to credibly announce the completion of an investigation of one of the two candidates for President of the United States, the candidate from the party, uh, the same party that she was in, and, and President Obama. But there were other prosecutors who could have done that. Well, no, I, not the way it was set up. Loretta had, it was a tremendous, I, I assume folks know some of this background, there was a lot of controversy during the final week of the investigation where she had had a meeting with Bill Clinton on an airplane, and there was all kinds of storm about whether that was fatally compromised her, all this kind of business. And I had no doubt that Loretta was a person of principle, but I worried a whole lot about the public perception that the investigation was not done credibly. And so she announced, without talking to me or Sally Yates, that she was not going to step out of the investigation, but she would accept my recommendation and that of the career prosecutors. So I don't know what option I had then besides choosing either to give her the, the traditional thing, the norm, or do something I'd never imagined before, which is announce the recommendation she said she would accept Well, you separately. said that of the career prosecutors, right? Right. So why not let them? And that, you know, they, you, they would not be able to announce anything. Well, you told the Justice Department about the press conference after the media had been notified. And you didn't tell them what you were going to say. A friend of mine who's a very respected former federal prosecutor says the only reason not to fully inform the Attorney General was that you knew you were doing something wrong and you didn't want to be stopped. I'm curious to hear your reaction to that. Only the second part of that's accurate. When I first read the words insubordination in the Inspector General's report, I actually had an emotional reaction, like, are you kidding me? She announced she would accept my recommendation, but I actually think it's fair criticism because I was intentionally not telling her what I was going to say, and a superior in a normal circumstance would expect that. So I think that was fair. I wasn't, wasn't not telling her because I thought I was doing something wrong. I thought, and honestly, I still think, between the two bad options, it was the one that was best suited to protect the institutions. But I was doing it because I didn't want to give her the opportunity to stop me. Because if she'd issued an order, don't do it. I would have followed that order. And so the second part of what your friend said is fair. The first part is not. You said you wanted to be transparent to make sure the FBI kept its credibility. But almost any time someone is investigated, you come up with damaging information about, or you can come up with damaging information about that person. It's highly unusual for prosecutors, much less investigators, to share that information if they're declining to prosecute. I'm not a lawyer, but I understand that's why they call it prosecutorial discretion, not law enforcement discretion. So why did you do it? I think that's right. As I said, the norm is the Department of Justice with the FBI standing next to them announces the closure of an investigation. It's not true that it never happens that transparency is offered when the F an investigation, a prosecution is declined. It's done 
when the public interest requires it. And, and I don't think there's a serious argument that the public interest didn't require some transparency here. I did it because I stared at the two options. If I do the normal thing, stand next to the Attorney General, a corrosive doubt will creep in about whether this was a political hit job to can an investigation of one of the two candidates for President of the United States. And that will be fed by the fact that President Obama has already twice said there's no there there. The Attorney General has met with Bill Clinton. Again, I don't think she did anything improper, but reasonable people, forget partisan wing nuts, reasonable people could have a doubt about what's going on with the Attorney General right before she announces the closure of this investigation, meeting privately with Secretary Clinton's husband. And so my thinking was, okay, there's two options. This one is much worse for the, the, the institutions of justice. I can spend some of my personal credibility, because I wasn't viewed as a partisan, and the FBI's, and by doing that, protect the institution. I knew this was gonna be terrible for me personally, because I knew reasonable people could see it differently and say the things that they've said. But I thought, as between the two, the FBI offering transparency separately is the, is the result best calculated to maintain the faith and confidence of the American people and end the investigation in a credible way, which we did, I thought. But why, if your intentions were so noble as you believe your actions were, have you been so roundly criticized by just about everyone? Yeah. I, and I, it's funny you say that. I don't actually, sometimes people say, when everybody's mad at you, it means you're right. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it could be you're completely wrong. I, I don't know for sure. I think people that have taken the time to put themselves in my shoes, and we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about October, which is a much more difficult decision, and stare at the options I stared at, would say, as the Inspector General did, I, I disagree with the result but I understand why he did what he did. And if people take the time to do that, the most important thing about the Inspector General's report, I believe for the institution is, we made the decisions in an apolitical way. We were trying to, and honestly, I've stared at this a thousand times, I would still do the same thing. Because doing the normal thing, norms produce predictable results in the normal situation. This is a 500 year flood. The Obama Justice Department, of which I'm a part, is investigating the Democratic candidate for President of the United States and is about to decline a criminal case on the eve of the conventions. How do you do that and maintain the faith and confidence of the American people? So but is I, that really your job? Is that your job to decide how to maintain the faith and confidence of the American people? Yes, is that within yes. your purview? Absolutely. When you are the leader of one of the institutions of justice, you must care about that deeply. Because the entire institution rests upon the faith and confidence of the American people. When the FBI rises in a courtroom or in Congress or in a cookout, they must be seen as independent in American life and must be trusted as people who care only about the facts. And so despite the way you were raised, I'm sure you were raised the same way. My mother said, you can't care what other people think. When you're director of the FBI, you have to because you run a public institution. So transparency is incredibly important. I believe the American people were due transparency here, fair and open description of why there was no criminal case here. You called Hillary Clinton's behavior extremely careless, mm -hmm. placing a value judgment on her. Can you give me an, another example of an FBI agent or prosecutor coming forward to publicly malign someone they decided not to prosecute? Sure. Lois Lerner, uh, IRS executive. The, F the Department of Justice described her as a poor manager but not engaged in criminal wrongdoing when they closed the investigation of the so-called targeting of the Tea Party. Uh, Jose Padilla, 
who was a so-called dirty bomber. In 2004, I was at the Justice Department. We did a public announcement of why he had been detained and not prosecuted and described in great detail his conduct. It is part of the norm to do that when the public interest requires it. Now, I've struggled with this. I wasn't trying to attack Hillary Clinton. I was trying to be transparent with the American people and describe the conduct. I don't think I could have credibly described the closure of an investigation in which the former Secretary of State discussed top secret information eight times in emails and secret information 50 sometimes in emails without offering some evaluation. Now, I screwed it up because extremely careless was a stupid term to use. I should have said really sloppy. Really? I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. Because I was trying to explain to the American people, look, there's ordinary sloppiness. You leave a document at a Starbucks. There's criminal misconduct where you know you're doing something you shouldn't do. David Petraeus is an example of that. And that's prosecuted. You don't get prosecuted for this. You, don't, you get prosecuted for this. Hillary Clinton was not this. It was something much more serious than this. It was really sloppy, but it didn't rise to the level of something that would be prosecuted. And so I needed to describe why we thought the conduct fell short of this threshold for prosecution. But frankly, if I described it as Starbucks document stuff, the result would have no credibility. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. The annual Aspen Ideas Festival just wrapped up and we're already dropping episodes. Last week, you heard Surgeon General Jerome Adams talk about children at the U.S.-Mexico border. You can find that episode on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player. Later this summer, listen for talks from the festival on Trump's foreign policy, immigration, modern feminism, and the mind of a dog. We can't wait to share these compelling conversations with you. Now back to our featured conversation with Katie Couric and James Comey. Here's Katie Couric. In his memo that was used as the rationale for firing you, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Allegedly, sorry. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said that you, quote, laid out your version of the facts for the news media as if it were a closing argument, but without a trial. It is a textbook example of what federal prosecutors and agents are taught not to do. Yeah, another reason why I think that memo is nonsense. If you look at the tradition of the Department of Justice, I just gave you two examples, there's lots of others. Ferguson is an example. We published an 80-some page report describing the police officer's conduct in shooting Michael Brown, what he did, how it happened, we laid it all out and didn't prosecute that police officer. It happens from time to time as part of a long tradition in the Department of Justice when the public interest requires it. What I did here, the only part of this that I believe departed from the norms of the Department of Justice was, instead of making the announcement standing next to the Attorney General, I announced it separately. There's no doubt, though, the announcement falls well within the conduct that the department is long engaged in. Let's talk about the second big decision you made, one that has made many Hillary Clinton supporters angry to this day. On October 28, 2016, 11 days before the election, you sent a letter to Congress that leaked to the public, I believe, nine minutes later, that said the FBI found new emails that could be pertinent to the Clinton investigation, and you were reviewing them. According to the IG report, these emails were actually found more than a month earlier, and the FBI failed to act. You were told about these emails either in late September or early October, and you didn't act. Why the delay? 
I don't know why the delay. The, invest, the, the investigators in New York who are investigating Anthony Weiner, I'm going to assume you all know who all that is and everything, um, they'd seized his laptop in a criminal investigation of him for improper sexual contact with a young woman. And it was apparent to the investigators there that there looked to be hundreds of thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails on there. And that's late September. Sometime in early October, somebody mentioned it to me in passing. And I don't remember it because I wouldn't index on it. Why would there be a connection between Anthony Weiner's computer and Hillary Clinton's email case? I don't know what the FBI did until I read the Inspector General's report in that month. I know what happened with me. I walked in on October 27th to the investigative team sitting there telling me exactly what they had found and asking me for a decision. Had they told me the same thing a month earlier, I'm confident I would have done the same thing a month earlier. And I wish, that's one piece of time I wish I could go back and fix. You said that once you were aware uh, of these emails and the fact that they needed to be reviewed, you had two choices in your words, speak, which was bad, or conceal, which was catastrophic. So yep. you chose bad. But the IG report says this mes mischaracterizes your two choices, which were actually follow policy and practice or depart from policy and practice, and that you chose to make your own rules. Yeah, I, this is where I disagree with them, and I really like these people and know them. I think just framing it as follow the norms or depart from the norms is just another way of saying you have a decision to make. Right? Norms, as I said, produce reliably good results in normal circumstances. In an incredibly but are, are, isn't it important to adhere to norms in abnormal circumstances, particularly? In fact, the IG went on to write, Jim, to protect the institutions from allegations of abuse, political interference, and biased enforcement of the law, the department and the FBI have developed policies and practices to guide their decisions. In the vast majority of cases, they are followed as a matter of routine, but they are most important to follow when the stakes are the highest and when the pressures to divert from them, often based on well-founded concerns and highly fraught scenarios, are the greatest. Yep, and I think as a, as a statement of the importance of norms, that's reasonable. They can't mean it, though, right? They can't mean that in every circumstance, you do what you would always normally do. And this is where I disagree with, with their framing of it. That's, you can't think about it that way as a lawyer and a leader. You should always say, so what's the norm? I love the norms. I should try to adhere to the norms, which is why, to me, their framing of follow the norm or depart from the norm just tells yourself you have to ask a question. And so the next question is, OK, if I follow the norm, what happens to the institution I love? What's the damage that flows? If I depart from the norm, what happens to the institution? So let me just finish, Katie. And so you have to still ask the question. I believe, and I don't mean this to be facetious, if I had concealed from the American people that what I and Loretta Lynch had said under oath repeatedly in the summer, that we're done with Hillary Clinton, American people, you can take that to the bank, you can vote knowing this is over, and Hillary Clinton were elected president, and it came out that the FBI had hidden the restarting of that investigation. And I don't mean this to be facetious. There would be an inspector general report about me and how I had destroyed the institution by departing from another norm, which is candor with a tribunal. When you make a statement under oath to a tribunal and you know it's not true, another norm in the FBI and the Department of Justice is you correct it. So I honestly think this was a nightmare. But if I had chosen to conceal that, I actually think there'd be an inspector general report ripping me 
for being a slavish adherent to following what we always do in all circumstances. But a lot of this was timing. 11 days before the election, you said you put out the letter because you had a duty to correct the, the record, because you told Congress and the public the investigation was closed, mm -hmm. and you, now new evidence has, had emerged. But wouldn't any prosecutor or investigator worth his or her salt wait to see if the new evidence was significant enough before charging out and announcing it, knowing it, it was knowing that it was such a political grenade you were throwing. Well, that's a reasonable question, but here's the problem. You're sitting there as the director of the FBI and the attorney general, by the way, I offered her the opportunity to weigh in on this decision and she passed. I said, here's what we, and that's the truth, here's what we face. The investigative team is telling me not only are there hundreds of thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop for reasons we can't possibly explain, but we may have found the missing emails. You remember this? The, what I described, the reason there was no prosecution here is there was no evidence that she knew she was doing something wrong. If there was going to be that evidence, it would come at the beginning of her tenure as Secretary of State. We never found any emails from her first three months as Secretary, because those were on a BlackBerry device. That morning, October 27, the investigative team says to me, not only are there hundreds of thousands of her Clinton uh, domain emails, there are tens of thousands of her BlackBerry emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. So they said to me, sir, the result may change. So you may decide to wait, maybe wait and see. They're also telling me we can't possibly finish before the election. So what do I do? Do I wait and see if we can get a peak? Do I wait till after the election? That's Why the problem. Why were they saying they couldn't finish before the election? Because they did. Well, the reason they were saying it made complete sense to me. You couldn't bring in recruits from Quantico like you would if you were looking for a bullet in a hayfield because people who knew the context had to actually read these emails to see if they contained classified information or if they contained clues to her intent. They said, we can't possibly do that in the 11 days left. And we can't use deduplicating software that's commonly available, law firms use, because the emails are all and have to be on our classified networks. We have no capability on the classified networks. And then what they did over that frantic week was our software engineers built deduplicating software for the classified networks and cut it down to 6,000 or so they had to read individually. And so a team of about half a dozen read them night after night after night and finished on the Sunday before the election. And they found lots of new stuff, but they said to me on Sunday morning before the election, our view of her culpability has not changed. And I Couldn't said- Couldn't you have done that though before making that, writing that letter? But how would I do that though? I mean, the team is telling me, credibly, we can't possibly finish before the election. And so what would be my reason to wait? Now, there's been a lot of speculation out there like, well, was he counting on a leak? No, in fact. I thought there was some prospect that it would leak once we enlarged the circle and we had a big team in New York knowing about the search warrant. But I thought that, in a way, would be the worst of all worlds for the FBI because so that were, would be speaking and concealing. So you were afraid of a leak? Of course. And, and Loretta Lynch, when she was consoling me on October 31st, after I wrote the letter, said, would they feel better if it leaked on November the 4th? And what I understood her to be saying is, this was gonna come out anyway. But my view was, I can't make a decision about something of this, this incredibly importance by assuming it's gonna leak. I have to own the decision on behalf of the institution and offer the Attorney General the opportunity to help me make it. So she consoled you? Yeah. What did she say? She hugged me. 
and it, I'm, I'm an awkward hugger to begin with, but... but We've when, seen that in the Oval Office, yeah, yeah. actually. <laughs> now, I have to correct that. There was no hug. <laughs> and no kiss. And there was no kiss. Uh, but yeah, she, she hugged me, and then she said, you asked me how, I've known Loretta a long time and really like her, and I think she really likes me. She hugged me and said, how are you doing? I said, it's a complete nightmare. It's the worst thing I've ever been involved in. And she said, and I said, explained, I said, what choice do I have? And she said, would they feel better if it leaked on November the 4th? And what I understood her to be saying was, basically, don't be so hard on yourself. This, your decision was actually not as important as you think it was because it was going to come out anyway. Maybe, but you can't make decisions that way when you're leading an institution. The IG report says the other reason you wrote the letter to Congress was your belief that Clinton would win and this would taint her presidency. Looking back on this, do you ever think, what was I thinking? Political prognostication should abs have absolutely nothing to do with my decision making. I should not even be contemplating the political future. Yeah, it didn't. I didn't. I intentionally pushed that to the side. One of my best advisors, we talk about I made this decision, I actually made it with a group of about 10 or 12 people. One of the best people in that group was a very talented lawyer who asked me a searing question. She said, should you consider that what you're about to do may help elect Donald Trump president? And I said, thank you for asking that question. It's a great question, not for a moment. Because down that path lies the death of the FBI as an independent force in the United States of America. If I ever start considering whose political fortunes will be helped in what way by a decision, we're just another partisan player. I can't. So you never worried this would taint her presidency if you did not come forward with this information, or no, if it came out later? No, I, we visualized that, talked about it, and then pushed it aside. Now, what I've done in the book, which they tell me is a mistake for a Washington book, I've tried to be introspective and ask myself that. Could it have affected me that the whole world assumed she was going to be elected president? And the honest answer is, of course. I was making that decision in an environment where everyone thought she was going to win, but I don't remember consciously thinking about it. And honestly, it wouldn't change the decision. I can't conceal that if Hillary Clinton's up 20 points in the polls, and I can't conceal it if Donald Trump's up 20 points in the polls, because either way would be catastrophic for the institution. Now, it makes the decision easier, because the damage, if you think about it, the damage to Hillary Clinton would be far, far worse if she was a president elected. Imagine the result changes. She's a president elected with an investigation underway, the FBI hid from the American people, and the FBI concludes she's criminally culpable after the election. Oh, my Lord. But that is not why I made the decision. Well, many people think, thanks to your actions, we don't even have to contemplate that. No, I get that. I get that. And I, I hope and pray that's not true. And I, I, don't, this, I don't mean this to sound also dismissive. It doesn't change how I think about the result. As painful as it is, even in hindsight, I think I made the right choice. And I know the Inspector General disagrees, but I say to people, please come with me to October 28th and stare at those choices and tell me which is the one most consistent with the values of the institution you lead. And I get that the IG sees it differently. I like them, I think they're wrong. We're gonna to get to the election results and how this might have affected them in a moment, but I have to ask you about your emails. The IG report said you yourself conducted official FBI business on your personal email account. You didn't use it for classified information. Nevertheless, the report said it was against policy. So if Hillary Clinton 
we're sitting in this chair today. How would you explain that? Well, first of all, I'd say I hope you understand what our investigation was about. And, and I've said this publicly a lot. It wasn't about her use of an unclassified email system, whether personal or State Department. I don't really care. It was about how you handled classified information. It would be the same investigation whether you were using AOL or ClintonEmail.com or the State Department system. My use of it, actually I don't agree with that, that it's inconsistent with policy. I would send speeches to myself at home, to word process at home, and then send them back to my account. It wasn't about handling classified information. And I do think some of the focus on this in the media reflects confusion about what the investigation was about. A lot of people hearing it, though, at least at its face value, think, oh, the irony. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. But again, if you look at it, it really has nothing to do with the investigation that we conducted. Let's talk about the impact of uh, this letter to Congress 11 days before the uh, election uh, had on the results. Two days before the election, you issued that statement saying there was no there there, basically. Well, no, saying that our... Our that conclusion had not changed. Okay. There was plenty of new there there. But your conclusion had not changed. Correct. A new series is coming from Aspen Ideas to go. Hey, I'm Mujat Lee, your host of the Offstage series on activism. We'll be hearing from a woman who fights for immigrant rights and a man who once was a white supremacist, but now fights against hate and racism. Join us for the Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage series, coming soon to your earbuds. The Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage series features presenters from the Aspen Ideas Festival and Spotlight Health interviewing one another. Wajahat's interviews on activism will drop later this month. Don't worry, the onstage talks you're used to won't stop. The offstage episodes are a bonus. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Katie Couric. Nate Silver, the highly respected polling guru, wrote, Hillary Clinton would probably be president if FBI Director James Comey had not sent a letter to Congress on October 28th. He goes on to say the letter, quote, upended the news cycle and soon halved Clinton's lead in the polls, imperiling her position in the Electoral College. Now, while Nate says uh, that there were other factors at play, he also wrote, quote, because Clinton lost Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by less than one point, the letter was probably enough to change the outcome of the Electoral College. I know you, you, you talked about that briefly uh, a few minutes ago, but that must be a tremendously heavy burden for you. Do you feel responsible for the election of Donald Trump and the current State of the Union? Oh. Oh. I, I, I hope these answers don't sound contradictory. I don't, but I also, it is a heavy burden. And, I, and I've said this, and I think our current president misunderstood what I meant. It leaves me feeling mildly nauseous to think, and I should have said nauseated, I know. But it, it leaves me feeling... My dad my, used to always correct me, because nauseous means you make people nauseated. Yeah, which I may, I may anyway. But the, <laughs> one of my daughters corrected me. But it, it, here's why I say that, that I've devoted my whole life to institutions of justice that want nothing to do with elections. 
the most powerful norm I've lived under is you take no action in the run-up to an election that might have an impact on the election. I believe in that at, to my core. My problem was I couldn't find a door labeled no action on October the 28th. I could see two actions, and they were both really bad. And, and so look, I feel sick to my stomach about it, but I, in an odd way, I don't feel responsible because I'm proud of the way we made the decisions. We thought about the right things. One of the things the IG confirmed for me is I didn't miss anything in terms of norms. There aren't any rules about this. We thought about it well, we argued about it, we debated it. I offered the leadership of the Department of Justice the chance to take the decision from me. And the response was, we think it's a bad idea, but it's his call. And so I think we made the decision in the right way, thinking about the right things, and I honestly wouldn't change it going back. And so there's peace in that. And I know it seems contradictory. There's peace in that just the same time there's nausea about the fact that you had any involvement. If I could change time, you would never have heard of me, right? I don't want to be famous. I, don't, I didn't want to be involved at all. This was a living nightmare. But I'm very proud of the way the leadership team around me made this decision. You say you don't want, want to be famous, but you wrote in your book, I've long worried about my ego. Sure. And you've admitted you can be driven by ego. So you don't think any of this was driven by ego even a little bit? I don't think so, although how, you know, how well do any of us really know ourselves? That's true about me. I've, I thought I was such hot stuff, as my mother used to say, especially when I was younger. I married an amazing person who has beaten that out of me in a lot of ways. <laughs> but look, I, I do worry. Any leader should worry about that. It's the reason I put a team around me of people who will speak the truth to me. And so I don't think this decision was made for ego reasons. And one of the reasons I say that is I could see the future. I knew how bad this was going to be for me personally. The best thing for me personally would have been to do the normal thing in July and let Loretta Lynch announce this baby and do the normal thing in October and say, well, we never comment and let the institution take the hit. One of the things that annoys my amazing wife is she says, why are you stepping in front of the institutions and getting shot repeatedly? Because that's my job. I knew how bad this was going to be for me. So I really, I've asked myself this a million times because I worry about myself. I really don't think these were driven by ego. Uh, let's talk about the third decision. And I want to roll through this because there's so much uh, I want to ask you about what's going on today. But this concerns the Russia investigation. We now know that by the time the election rolled around, that investigation had been going on for months. It was never made public. You refused to confirm or deny it. And you followed FBI protocol. Can you explain what appears to be a blatant double standard? Yep, it's a reasonable question. Actually, it was an easy decision for us because think about the difference between the Clinton investigation and the Russia counterintelligence investigation. The Clinton investigation began with a public referral in 2015 to the FBI. The subject of the investigation was Hillary Clinton herself. I refused to confirm that even existed for three months after it came to us publicly and then spoke not another word until we closed it with transparency. The Russia counterintelligence investigation is different. There's two things going on in the summer of 2016 about Russia. One is our trying to understand the massive Russian effort to mess with our election. There, I thought we ought to offer the American people transparency, and I wrote an op-ed that I offered to the Obama administration to tell the American people, here's what's going on. That's one thing with Russia. The separate and very different was, we got information in late July that Americans may be connected to that effort. 
And so we opened a counterintelligence investigation, not focused on Donald Trump, but focused on people in the Trump orbit on whom we had kind of wisps of information. And so we actually never talked about disclosing that because what would we say? But we just, let me just finish for a second. We just opened this investigation on Americans. We don't know if there's anything to it at all, and it doesn't involve the candidate himself. And so it honestly never came up. We wrestled a whole lot about what to say about this, but I can't imagine anyone in our shoes disclosing the beginning of a counterintelligence investigation. But yep. on October 31st, 2016, that was nine days before the election, the New York Times published a story saying that the FBI had found, quote, no conclusive or direct link between Mr. Trump and the Russian government. FBI sources also said that Russian hacking was aimed simply at disrupting the presidential election and not helping Donald Trump. You said in an interview that, uh, with The New Yorker, with David Remnick, that was false. Did you know the story was wrong at the time? And if so, why not correct the record? Well, when the stories that are wrong about classified investigations, classified subjects, we never correct them, unless we're in a position where the matter, you know, the matter is public in some way. So that story was wrong in the second respect, in that the, what we concluded about Russia was they were trying to damage our democracy most of all. That was their overwhelming desire. Second, hurt Hillary Clinton. Third, help elect Donald Trump. So in that respect, it was wrong. The first part was not wrong. But yeah, there was no serious discussion about correcting that. There was agony. President Obama had a hard decision to make. Do I tell the American people the Russians are coming for our election? That was a very hard decision. That was his to make. But couldn't a reasonable voter in October of 2016 conclude based on information coming from Jim Comey's FBI that Hillary Clinton was a candidate overwhelmed by scandal who had acted extremely carelessly and Donald Trump did nothing wrong? Did nothing wrong in what sense? Did nothing wrong in terms of there was no collusion, there was no suspicion that he was involved with the Russians and, you know, that that was kind of a case closed, is at least that article in the well, Times not a case closed. led well, people to that, I think, conclusion. Right. Now, the thing about the Times is a detail, but it matters. They weren't reporting official disclosures by the FBI or the Department of Justice, which is an important thing. They were reporting whatever they were getting from their sources. Whatever they were but reporting, they were giving voters an impression. Right. But I'm, it's not the government's responsibility to correct erroneous reports based on sources. It just isn't. But to come to the most important question, Donald Trump was not a subject of a counterintelligence investigation in October of 2016. We were still trying to figure out, was anybody in that orbit working with the Russians? and still didn't know the answer at that point. And I, don't, I actually don't know what the answer is today. We had enough to open an investigation, but by that point, I had no basis to believe there was evidence of a connection between people and a solid connection between people and the Russian effort. What do you think now? I don't know. I don't know what Bob Mueller will find. And I, I worry that people from all points of the political spectrum project onto him hopes for a result. My only hope is for the truth. If he's left to do his job, He may find there's not significant evidence of a connection. He may find, I don't know what he'll find on obstruction of justice, I honestly don't know. It's just he'll find the facts if he's allowed to finish. If there is evidence of a crime, should Mueller indict or refer the information to Congress for possible impeachment proceedings in your view? I don't know what he should do. 
because uh, I'm, I'm not an expert enough to know how to think about the, you're talking about the president, I assume? Yes. How to think about indicting the president? I gather, again, I have not read it myself, but I gather there's a Department of Justice opinion that you can't indict a sitting president, and so he would need to sort that out with the legal beagles. Let, let's talk about President Trump, Trump's temperament. Um, <laughs> you have said, I think he has an emptiness inside of him and a hunger for affirmation in him I've never seen in an adult, which sounds like a textbook definition of a narcissist. Uh, after his comments following the white supremacy rally in Charlottesville, you said you believed he is morally unfit to be president. Has your opinion of President Trump changed for better or for worse in the last, say, year? It's gotten worse because I see more of the behavior that I think whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent, you should care deeply about the erosion of the central norm of the United States of America, the truth, an attack on the rule of law that I've never imagined before. And so it's those, those attacks on our norms and our values have only gotten more serious, and, sh and everybody should care about them, no matter where you are in the policy spectrum, because all we are in this country is a collection of values, and we lose those. Really? You're going to trade that for some position on taxes or immigration or anything else? You should never trade what is essentially America. Is there anything specifically you're particularly concerned about when you look at his actions and his rhetoric? Well, those two. I think the central touchstone of American public life is the truth. We always measure our leaders by their tether to the truth. George W. Bush spoke falsely when he said there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Barack Obama spoke falsely when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And then both of those people spent the rest of their tenure and probably the rest of their lives explaining the tether to the touchstone. I didn't know that, I meant this, I understood this, because the touchstone is something they see. There's so much lying going on right now, there's a risk this is gonna melt like a sandcastle at the beach and we will become numb to the fact that it is the center of the United States of America and stop judging our leader by the touchstone to this. That is deeply concerning and closely connected to the rule of law. I wake up probably once a week and the President of the United States has tweeted that I should be in jail. And I honestly laugh because I know there's, no, there's nothing to that. It's just him saying stuff. And then I stop and actually criticize myself and say, what are you doing? You're becoming numb to something that is profoundly threatening to the central norm of rule of law in this country. And I say to my, I used to be a Republican, I say to my former Republican colleagues, imagine Barack Obama wakes up in the morning and announces that so-and-so should be in jail. Your head would explode. And why would it explode? Because that norm, the rule of law in this country, lady justice with a blindfold, is all we are as a country. So I'm deeply concerned about all of us becoming numb to what's happening to us. And why are, are your Republican colleagues with whom you have these conversations, are they outraged? Well, most Republicans don't talk to me anymore. Um, <laughs> so I've succeeded in pissing off everyone, except Patrice, who uh, still loves me. Um, the, the, I think what they're doing is making a trade. They've convinced themselves that 
the Supreme Court or a tax cut or something is worth it. And I keep saying to them, and because they don't talk to me personally, I say it in the media, I ask them to take the grandchildren test. What are you going to tell your grandchildren? You were here and you traded what? For this? You traded that? So my small contribution in what I hope is a very brief period where I'm a celebrity is to raise all of our eyes above the things we normally fight about and stare at the values in this country. Because without them, I mean, we're a country that shouldn't exist. Right? We're not united by religion, by ethnicity, by anything except our commitment to a set of ideas. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Truth is our fourth word in our foundational documents. We've always been imperfect, but we are organized around a set of values. They're not worth trading for anything. And in the long run, your grandchildren are going to look up at you and say, what did you do? And I hope to God all of us realize that in the end, that's the most important question for us to answer. And I get the power of the moment, right? People are passionate about this, passionate about that. Holy cow, please take the long view. I called my book A Higher Loyalty because I hope all of us are loyal first and foremost to those things. And then we can get back to these other things. I hope in the next presidential election, people will vote their values. And I don't care who they vote for, so long as they vote those values first of all. We have to restore the presidency as the representative, the embodiment. Imperfect, because it's always people, but a representative of those values. Then we get back to all the important disagreements. Does Donald Trump have a single... <laughs> Does he have a single attribute other than his energy? that you admire? Or is there anything he's done at all in the last year and a half that you appreciate or support? Energy's one, so I'll, I'll, that'll be the uh, given. I think he is extraordinarily perceptive and very good of public mood certain and communication. I think what he's done with his ability to step through filters and communicate directly is genius. Now, I think a lot of it is really bad, the way it's done, but it's, it's really extraordinary and will change the way public figures think and talk about communication in the future. So I think that's extraordinary. I, I don't, because I focus so much on his erosion, his attack on our central norms and values, I really can't think of much positive to say beyond that. Let's talk about Justice Kennedy, who announced he's retiring. Uh, what do you believe will be the biggest consequences of a new, more conservative Supreme Court? I don't know for sure, because it will depend upon their adherence to the principle of stare decisis, which is a really important norm in the court system. That is, you respect that which has been decided unless there's a significant change in facts or an intervening change in the law. Um, I would imagine on close calls, there will be more of a so-called conservative, much easier, uh, much easier to assemble a conservative majority to win a 5-4 case on important issues. Well, well, I know that uh, legal analyst and writer Jeff Tubin predicted Roe v. Wade would be overturned and, with 18, and within 18 months, abortion would be illegal in 20 states. Do I don't you believe know. that? I don't know that because of the, again, it's a really important part of the entire judicial system, especially the Supreme Court, this notion that precedent must be respected, absent something fundamental, especially fundamental change in facts. So I actually don't know that. It's possible. But my view is that would probably, it would, 
you'd have to take a deeply unprincipled stand with respect to, to tradition and precedent. And I, I can't imagine a new justice supporting that, at least that early in their tenure. In, in this morning's Wall Street Journal, you talk about norms and values. And, and Floyd Abrams called Justice Kennedy the First Amendment's in undisputed champion. Do you worry about the absence of his voice at a time when freedom of the press and the fourth estate is being so maligned and so undermined? Sure, of course. I don't know, though, again, what decisions will be affected at the margins by a change in a justice. But of course I do. I think we should all, wholly apart from the Supreme Court, where I often think we, we pour too much of our attention, we've surrendered as a people a whole lot of power to the Supreme Court that actually we ought to call on our Congress to, to take and act on. But I, I think more generally we should worry deeply about the president's attacks on the rule of law. That's another one I left out, obviously. Central freedom of expression, freedom of religion, that's at the core of this nation. A president who wakes up announcing that the press is the enemy of the American people, wow. What are you going to tell your grandchildren? Let's talk about your future. Uh, I know in the acknowledgments you thanked a lot of people and you said thank you for the joy and the journey, which isn't over yet. So let's talk about what's ahead for you. <clears throat> On June 16th, you tweeted, so good to see new growth in Iowa and across the country with a picture of yourself in an Iowa field. Yeah. It, that just means people don't realize I'm married to an Iowa girl. <laughs> and I visit there all the time. And that was actually my subtle way of, of maybe temporarily, maybe forever, ending my presence on Twitter because it began with Patrice. She took a picture of me. I'm so tall, standing in a cornfield. And then people were like, he's running? No, never. But, but she took a picture of me as we, we went for a walk through a new field. And then we tweeted it out kind of as a bookend on my Twitter career. Because your Twitter alias thing is very confounding to people. Talk about that. My Twitter alias is Reinhold Niebuhr, who's a theologian and philosopher <laughs> who had a tremendous influence on me as a young person and still does. Because it's really the message I hope to share with young people. Niebuhr said, the world sucks. So what? Right? So what? Don't you dare withdraw just because it sucks. Get in there, step into the public square and achieve justice. My great worry today is the young people are gonna look at it and say, God, it's so icky. I don't wanna be involved in that. And they can't. We need them to step forward. And I see it already. At the end of my book, I describe Donald Trump as a forest fire. And I chose that metaphor on purpose because he's doing tremendous damage to this country, but forest fires allow things to grow that could not grow before. And I see the growth already as I travel around. I've had to travel a lot as part of the book tour. And I see young people engaged like I never imagined. I see record numbers of women running for office, so many that they're competing with each other. Could you ever imagine that five years ago? And so I'm essentially, I'm optimistic. And I also just finished John Meacham's book, which told me it has sucked before. Uh, <laughs> And it will suck again. It will suck again. But, but I walked out of Meacham's book with this, this uh, graphical metaphor. America's line is always an upward slope. But if you stare at it, it's not a solid line. It's a jagged line. Periods of progress, retrenchment. Progress, retrenchment. Right? We, think, we forget that 1920 to 24, there were 20-some million Ku Klux Klan members in this country. A third of the Congress was KKK members as a re reaction to Women getting the vote, huge numbers of immigrants, blacks getting marginal improvements. 
And then we saw it again in the 1950s, 1950 to 54. Joe McCarthy dominated our politics. His fellow party members were afraid to speak out against him. And then he faded. This too shall pass. What's really important for all of us is know that it will pass, but cabin the danger. Confine the fire so the recovery, the healing of those scars is faster. But we are going to heal and we're going to recover. Patrice's Iowa roots aside, would you ever consider running for president? No. No. So what are your immediate plans? Teach, work for a law firm, have your own <laughs> talk show? <clears throat> I've done Netflix that. and chill. What no. are you going to be doing? No. I've already, I've already lined it up. I just spent this year teaching at Howard University, which was really, really cool for me. And the, the students, that was the university that once booed you, remember? When yeah, you the, went and spoke there? They interrupted my first lecture, chanting, Comey is not our homie, which I thought was pretty awesome. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, by the end of the year, the kids who chanted that were coming to my lectures and talking and saying, to me. saying Comey is our homie? No, no, no. <laughs> still, still disagreeing with me, but it's hard to hate up close. And when you get up close with people and see them as human beings, it's much easier to have a conversation. So I found the year at Howard really rewarding. It was all about law enforcement and race at their request. And now starting in August, I'm teaching at my beloved alma mater, not UVA, William and Mary. Psst. So. Just kidding. It's a great, it's a right. great school. Yeah. And so what so I'm gonna be teaching in the public policy program about leadership and ethical decisions and hard decisions. And that's really fun. And my book will be one of the books which I have given to the students who registered. I never wanted to be that professor. Uh, <laughs> How many books have you sold, by the way? Uh, a ridiculous amount. I, I, more than a million. I don't know yeah. exactly. A lot more than a million? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So in closing, because I was told I could not go over, when all is said and done, what do you hope your legacy will be? This is an odd thing. I hope to be forgotten. That, in this sense, I hope that, and Patrice hopes this I don't this believe too. that. Well, here's what I hope. I hope that someone will establish that what I did had absolutely no impact. That, that there's a way to prove that. And then failing that, I, first of all, my most important thing is, I want to be a great husband, a great father, and a great grandfather, and a great neighbor and community member. That's the only thing that has value in my life. The rest of it, I hope that I'm known as a person who tried to do the right thing, who thought well about things and made judgments with an eye on the right things. And, and that's something that I'd be very proud of. Realistically, what do you think your legacy will be? I don't know. I guess it'll depend on where you sit. I mean, people have a passion. I, you all know this, but the Trump people think I was on Hillary Clinton's side. The Clinton people think I was on Trump's side. I really hope that in the, in the long sweep of things, It'll be clear we weren't on anybody's side. We were people in the middle of a 500-year flood trying to make good decisions. And whether you agree with the decisions or not, they were good decisions in the way they were made and the values that guided them. And I actually think in the long run, people will see that. That's, I know this sounds crazy. That's actually not all that important to me. The other things I talked about are more important to me. But that's, I think that's most likely, that once the storm passes and we've res resumed our inevitable progress in this country, there'll be a, a, a more dispassionate look at it. But I don't know, maybe not. Jim Comey, thank you very much. James Comey is the former director of the FBI. His book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, was published earlier this year. 
Katie Couric is an award-winning journalist, a best-selling author, and co-founded Stand Up to Cancer, a charitable program that funds and develops cancer treatments. Couric is also a trustee of the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.